Welcome to Force Points to the Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Erica Pierce to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Always covered in 15 minutes or less. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, and welcome back to To The Point Cybersecurity. I am one of your hosts, Erica Pierce, and joined, as always, with uh, Eric Trexler. How you doing, Eric? Hey, Eric, I'm doing well. We're going across the pond again. Yes, I know. I'm excited. We have another uh, guest from the UK with us this week. We have Audra uh, Simons. Thank you for joining us, Audra. Good morning. <laughs> so, Audra, you are the director of Innovation Labs at, uh, at Force Point. Um, and as we said, you're, you're based. Where in the UK are you based, by the way? Um, we're based in Reading in Berkshire. Oh, very good. Very good. So, right outside London. Gotcha. Yeah, like and the IT hub. Okay. Okay. So, um, you know, we hear so much about innovation. It's kind of a buzzword, <laughs> I, I would say, in so many different um, sectors right now. Um, but I, I thought today we could spend a little bit of time talking about, you know, what truly is innovation, especially from a, um, a cybersecurity perspective. So just curious, how do you view innovation, Audra? And we um, also like to know how you view it as well. Um, personally, I view innovation very much as um, creating the, the products um, and solutions of the future. Um, a lot of what we do is um, looking at where the market's going, look at the trends, look at the problems that our customers are facing and how we can address those. Um, but what I do a lot of is focus on ideation side of things. So the ideation and research side um, with execution. Because one of the issues with innovation, most people think about innovation is about the ideas. But if you don't execute and actually make them into something, they don't really count. I think that's a great point, Audra. I, I actually ran an innovation uh, development organization around threats, uh, threat innovation. You had techniques on how to determine um, malware, APTs, zero days. And that was the biggest thing that I learned in that process. Innovators like to do fun things. They like to try mm -hmm. things. And, mm -hmm. and you've got to be willing to fail you, you've oh, got to give them the latitude to fail, but you also have to put constraints around it because without guardrails, they'll literally innovate on anything. Oh, absolutely. Or try to. And what ends up happening is you lose focus of why you're doing it, what you're, what you're really trying to accomplish, which is to solve customer problems. Exactly. Exactly. And one of, the, one of our mantras is if we're going to fail, we want to fail quickly. Because failing quickly doesn't cost as much as failing in the longer term. Yeah, I always yes. say you should fail quickly and, and fail forward, right? <laughs> but you, you need a focus. I remember one of the things when the new MacBook Pro came out, the, the uh, trash can model, everybody had to have one so we could innovate faster. And it was like, well, okay, cool. help me understand what that will do to help the customer, right? Now there are things you had. We had to have we had to have uh, Xboxes. We had an Xbox game room where they would just take breaks to to chill, to think, to bond as a team, while they thought about customer problems. Hmm. And and that was a really you know it wasn't necessarily innovation in itself, but it fostered an innovative environment, and it made sense. Whether you were developing on a Mac Pro or something else, you know it's so you you've got to have those. Uh, You've got to have a strong leader who can look at and direct the innovative team, in my opinion. 
I agree. And um, I've, I've actually done some courses on innovation to identify what kind of people you need to be part of your innovation team to make it successful. And the people who are the ideas people are absolutely essential, but the delivery people and the ones who actually execute are essential too. And most innovation teams and businesses tend to be more made up of the ideation side of things rather than the executors. Agreed. That's interesting. Never, never <laughs> the same person, right? You have, you have your idea people and the people that can execute. Well, sometimes you have the same person. You know, you'll yeah, you'll see they, they have a great idea. They'll do a mock-up for you. They'll, they'll even do a production pilot, we might call it, in the industry. And all of a sudden, you've got something that almost works, which is a really great idea or yeah. a really bad idea. But many times you have the, the idea people and they either don't know how to convert that into, into a product or productize it, or they don't know how to Q and a it from the, from the perspective of, is there value here for a customer or not? Like, exactly. where do you, how do you, how do you figure out what a great idea it looks like? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And at the end of the day, everything that you do in innovation should be aligned to your customer's needs. I truly believe that. I mean, I know that Steve Jobs said that we'll build it and they'll come, but most businesses don't work that way. And our customers need us to be solving real world problems. So therefore getting customers involved up front in innovation is incredibly important. Audrey, I love that concept. In, in my experience, the most, in, the most successful innovation I've seen is when we had a customer problem and we threw a really creative, smart team at it and said, okay, here's the problem statement. How do we solve for it? As opposed to just generating ideas for the sake of generating ideas, they yeah. were able to target and, and bound themselves and it worked a lot better, more effectively. It, it does and it tends to, do, to be more mean you're more successful in the market because you've actually taken your customers along the journey with you. So they've been part of the innovation. So it's, it becomes real. So, so what kind of innovations are we seeing right now, especially, um, you know, in terms of, of, of cybersecurity? You know, I know <laughs> some of the innovations we probably can't talk about, but, you know, what, what's on the horizon right now? What type of customer problems do, um, do, do you see in terms of the industry that need to be solved? Um, some things I can tell you about, um, because I've actually spoken externally about them, um, I actually believe that um, trust scores or risk scores are going to start becoming something that businesses have to report on. There are um, companies like Moody's who are beginning to put um, cyber risk scores as part of their overall financial scoring of businesses. Mm-hmm. So I believe that that's definitely coming and it's and with the number of breaches that are happening and so on, like companies' cyber hygiene is going to become as important as their financial health. So that is definitely something that's coming. And I, Eric, I don't know if you're seeing that so much on the government side of things of maybe government departments being able to prove that their cyber hygiene is healthy. We're, we're seeing, you know, the DOD has the cyber scorecard. We see the FISMA reports on the civilian side. So we're, we're seeing the rankings and the, you know, the metrics being rolled out. Risk is still a really difficult conversation to have in the government space. And from what I hear from my peers, even in the commercial space, getting your hands around cyber risk, risk to the business is still very challenging, primarily because 
there is there's still a wall between IT and security and the business. Agreed. Agreed. But if, if you start having the conversations as part of you know business risk management, rather than naming it cybersecurity, then you start getting board members who actually get what you're talking about. Mm, oh, I, I think the board wants it. I mean, the board speaks in risk all the time, right? So the, yeah. the board wants it. I think the insurance companies want to talk in that language. Oh, definitely. Right. And I, honestly, I think those two entities will be driving that risk conversation three to five years from now. I think this would be a very different answer to the question. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, the way I see it is that going forward, once it's established, people will have it on their website. You know, it'll, it'll be like like when you go to restaurants and you see kind of people's hygiene rating at a restaurant. <laughs> it'll be that, but for cybersecurity. So, and it'll make it a lot easier to make decisions on who you want to do business with and who you have within the supply chain and your supplier's supply chain. But there still needs to be an education process. I mean, in, in some cases, what we what we see, at least in the States, consumers continue to do business with companies even after post-breach. So I was thinking Thank that you. same thing. <laughs> Mike, would I, would I not bank with someone that recently had a, a, a breach? Because or would, that, you, would you move your banking right. accounts? Maybe I, I even would. another a better question. I, I would. But, but the thing is, at the end of the day, there's free will across everything for people to make their decisions. But at least if you're beginning to get the information to help you make an educated decision on who you want to do business with, and then it's there. If people decide not to take advantage of that, then that's personal choice. I think it comes down to education of the audience also. We speak okay. from a from an educated cyber perspective. We understand somewhat the risk. I don't know that the common constituent of the United States or, or pick your country across the globe necessarily understands what the risk looks like until they've actually had to deal with it, right? If your, yeah. your data, your, your identity is stolen, yeah. that's a and real problem. An impact on their lives, absolutely. But maybe maybe it's exactly. about being able to tell the story so people can actually see it as tangible and how it will affect their life if it happens. Mm -hmm. Oh, absolutely. Audra, okay. let's, let's get back to innovation. I mean, when yes. we talk innovation, how do you, how do, you do it? What does it look like? How fast is it from idea to productization? Can you give us some examples? Um, I can indeed. Um, the way we tend to work, we have three different streams um, where ideas come into our team. Um, we have directed research, which is one of our main channels where it comes through from um, the business. So effectively, we have new idea generation workshops that we do when we need to innovate in particular areas. We do hackathons. We have R&D weeks. Um, we also work on patent harvesting. And on top of that, we have the input from our customers, from our sales teams, from the SEs, and from, from the industry. We also work very closely with our parent company, looking at some areas of co-development. And one of the areas that um, the last area of innovation streams is around our university program. So we, we have a university program where we try to inject some of academia into our research. So why, and, do, why do we do that? Why not just um, do it all in-house? Because of the fact we don't, you know, there, there are a lot of very smart, very innovative people out in the world beyond us. And we, it helps to actually expand your view 
because I'd like even speaking with you, Eric, on a regular basis, we have very different points of view on specific topics, but it helps to actually develop your ideas if you're actually getting people to come at it from a different direction. It helps with creativity. It helps with how you're actually addressing the problem and your approach to addressing the problem. Interesting. Well, I guess innovators come in different uh, flavors, right? (laughs) Absolutely. And it's like spinning a Rubik's cube. Every time you turn it, it can be different. And depending Mm -hmm. on who you actually have as part of that. That's the thing I've I've noticed. You never know if it's going to pay off or if you're going to spend your time and end up with nothing. Or or disproving an idea. But that's all part of the risk, right? I mean, that's part of the risk. Actually, part of what we do is de-risk our investments. So therefore, and, and in doing that, we do things like we expose the ideas, we expose the concepts, we expose the prototypes to our customers to actually get their feedback on what we're doing, the direction we're taking, and find, you know, true world, like, are we actually addressing your problems if we do it in this manner? So, and that, that helps a lot from a de-risking. Also, if you create a prototype and you test it, you're going to be, even if it's a failure, you may actually discover something from it that can actually take you in a different direction mm-hmm. that won't be a failure. It, it reminds me of interviewing. You know, the hiring process is so uh, so complex and it drives me crazy because you want to get to the best candidate. That's your goal. Yeah. You want to hire somebody. But you have to go through, let's say you interview and you put 10 people through the process. Yes. That's a 10% success rate. Yeah. Right? In, in, most, in, in most evaluations and most things in life, that would be an absolute failure. Really, you're successful, though, if you get the best possible person by going through that arduous process, you can. It's, and that's, that's Even though only, yeah. It's, but, but you also have to look at something else. Through what we're doing, companies who do not have innovation groups but are trying to innovate, may take a solution all the way to go to market and out into the market, invest all the time and energy in the development of that and try and sell it to customers. And then it doesn't address a problem. So it's, it's a lame duck product. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it's not doing anything out there and they've just invested X number of millions of dollars taking it to market because they didn't test it in the first place. Which is equivalent to hiring the wrong person because you spend 30 minutes talking to them. So I, I, fundamentally, I agree with it. It just drives me crazy <laughs> it, it, in innovation and, and in hiring. So take us through an example, Audra, where, I don't know, maybe we worked with a university program. Let's take it outside the company. From okay. idea or concept creation through to productization, what does that look like? Okay. Um, well, University of Texas, San Antonio, we've been working with, um, we had a program that ran with them over the last year. Um, we defined that we wanted to look at particular areas, one being insider threat and two identification of insider threat through um, like effectively data at rest and looking whether it was possible to develop an algorithm that could identify insider threat potential based on the files that people store. Because you have to look at files like that you store, and you don't touch that often, but you're keeping them, mm-hmm. tend to be reasonably valuable details. They tend to be valuable data. Like I have, I have personnel, I, I have PII all over my laptop. Yeah. And I may have it from five years ago where it, it's, I'm not using it, but it's there. It's still there. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, so our approach with the university 
was around defining what we wanted to try to find and um, and work out whether it's even feasible. Because how do you know whether um, looking at what people store on their C drive, whether or not that actually is going to show anything of value? Um, so we did we did a series of tests with them. They actually focused um, their algorithm development around graph measurements, um, which is very graph theories around. Um, well, it's dedicated to the study of structures made up of verticals or sorry vertices um, connected by direct and undirect edges, which is it, generally it makes some really good pictures <laughs> that I'll actually show you. It's very visual, um, but the idea was to see whether or not we could create a risk risk profile based on the data that people held. Hmm. Who came up and, with the idea? Um, the idea actually came from us, okay. but we actually agreed with the details with um, the university because they, they, have very, they have a cyber security center where they focus particularly on insider threat. So how do you decide to go out, how, out of the house instead of keeping it in-house to um, do the research? We decided that this was an area that um, we didn't necessarily like. Insider threat, we have expertise within the business, but actually identification, going out to look at, say, stockpilers and, um, and data hoarding and those sorts of things, we didn't feel we had the ability to invest the time to actually go out and do the algorithm development. And um, there's a key team um, based at university that are completely algorithm focused and around insider threat. So sometimes it's it's better to farm out the research, but we held hands the whole way. We had <laughs> monthly meetings or much more often, quite often in different parts of it to actually look at where we are going, the findings that we we're getting and so on. And admittedly, we, we did do several um, passes in terms of data sets to actually work out what kind of data sets provide meaning and what ones don't. So, so when, go, go ahead, Erica. No, I was going to say, so um, in terms of what, what what did you find or what were some of the outcomes? Can you share any of that? Oh, yeah, I can. We, yeah, did it work? <laughs> well, we found that there's definitely value in it. Um, we also, after the algorithm had been developed and we had findings that were showing, like we actually provided them some data was seeded with bad actors in order to see whether or not we could find those bad actors. And we did, which that was a good start to it. Um, but we also then um, did a validation of the algorithm using random forest to make certain the ones that were actually popping up as bad actors actually were. And, and thankfully, both of those majority actually matched. Um, some of the things, though, that we found that were interesting were not necessarily related to the algorithm. Some of the things that we discovered were, were the data itself. And looking at, um, so you look at, the profile that you get set up with when you join Forcepoint. So like the, like IT, they may go and look at what's the most relevant profile for you. Then all businesses do this differently. But the problem is those profiles at the very beginning can actually be things that will lead to problems for a company later on. So Eric, say if we gave you an HR profile, we decided that's most appropriate for you. A very and bad idea, but go ahead. <laughs> we're going to give you the HR profile. And you're going to have visibility of all offer letters, all salary rise, and all that sort of things. It was some of these things started kind of highlighting what could happen and things that we need to think about because those can be some of the problems that people have access to data that they shouldn't. 
Um, other things we found is sometimes we overshare. So sometimes we send out information and data far more than we should to, to people who don't necessarily need to have that information. And um, so in that case, that can kind of lead to false positives just surely because of the fact people saved it because it was sent to them. So that, that was interesting. But um, learnings from the algorithm itself, it made peer-to-peer -peer comparisons within departments very easy. So if you're looking at finance, there was absolutely, you could kind of lay one graph over the other and actually see how similar people are who work in certain departments in terms of the types of data they have, the volumes of data they have, um, kind of the clustering of what the content of the data is. And so, so it proves you can actually see that at least from data at rest. And then when you have individuals who are very outside from their peers, then it's easier to actually go, is it just because our job is that much different or is it something we should be concerned about? In this case, yeah. then we took an idea concept, we actually proved it out. And in addition to proving out the idea or the concept, we, we, we learned a ton. We, we had a auxiliary benefits, if you will, secondary Absolutely. benefits. How long, did, how long did it take to productize it? Has this been productized? Um, at the moment, we're actually going through um, recreating the results internally because the results were delivered by UTSA. Okay. And at the same time, we are sharing all this with the business and working out how we can actually integrate this into our solution. From a feature, okay. How, how long is that research period typically? Is it short, um, long? To be honest, the UTSA is the longest research um, project that I've run within the business. So it, it lasted for over a year. But um, a normal, like pretty normal um, prototype lasts anywhere between three weeks to three months. We oh, wow. Be longer than that. That's a pretty short time frame, I would have thought. Um, it would have been how long do you think it takes to productize that on average? <laughs> what do you think, Erica? Give me a, give me a number uh, of, uh, of months. I'm going to go with nine, nine months of a full gestational period. <laughs> I'm an optimist. I'm going with six, Audra. Okay. What does it typically take to productize? Well, I'll, I'll tell you the fastest. The fastest was we did um, a research project around our lexicons in um, our behavior analytics and how we could actually improve our lexicons to okay. be much better. And we did a load of testing with several customers. Half a year. Uh, sorry, no, no, we did it. It started in end of January and it went into in May, end yeah. of May, okay. beginning of June. So, so five months. Five months. Darn, if we're playing prices right, Erica, we both lose. <laughs> I know, so that did the research, but it went straight into the product because the results were so good. Oh, so the research was five months and it goes straight into the product. Yeah. So it was five months. We actually went to market with it. <laughs> from wow. My, from idea, from idea, concept creation to actual productization is five months. Um, that was for the lexicon project. I would say, generally speaking, you're talking more kind of because we're much further out in terms of what we look at in terms of the ideas and future. Okay. It can take anywhere between um, six to, eight, to 12 months probably of what we've done. But most, once we've released research, because it still has to be scaled, it still has to be developed, still has to go through the productizing process. 
Right. So you need SKUs, you need technical documentation, you need to QA it and everything else. So Eric, I think we both won yeah. on that secondary. <laughs> I, think, I think the answer, it depends, it's, covered both of our it answers. Depends, it, right. it, it depends, right. It depends. <laughs> but that's still pretty impressive. From idea to delivery, we're probably talking a year. That's pretty yeah. impressive. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I would have thought it took much longer. So that, that's very impressive and exciting. I mean, it must be great yeah. to be able to continue to be always looking for new ideas and being able to move them through the queue at that, at that yeah, speed. Absolutely. So, yeah. absolutely. And it's, we do lots of exciting stuff with suppliers and, and like partners and things like that. And that's also really interesting being able to look at how you can merge other solutions like, um, we did a um, prototype with Ping, who are an identity access management supplier, and about kind of integrating what they have in terms of um, signing in. So when people are authorized to sign in, taking information and logs they could provide us into our behavior analytics and then passing back risk scores. So, I mean, there are a lot of things that we do that it's stepping forward, both for our own internal solutions as well as those of our partners. Okay, Audra, last question. You're queen yes. for a day. What would you change about the innovation process if you had a magic wand? <laughs> um, I would continue to grow by secondment because I actually get some amazing people who come into my team through secondment. And I would actually have additional focus and budget to enable us to move quicker. That's two. You've got to pick one. <laughs> well, she's queen, but, so you know she yeah, gets to have. The, she can the, have both. People, it is all about the people. So I would go with the growing by secondment with additional subject matter experts because there's some amazing people in this company. Okay, and I just looked up uh, secondment because I I wanted to make sure I understood the terminology <laughs> for all of our readers at my level. A secondment is the opportunity to work temporarily in a different firm or department to the one you are already working in. Ah, correct. Some cross-directional learning. It's, and, and when you get people, when they come into it and their passion is there, you get incredible results. Well, we appreciate what you and your team are doing, not just for the company, but, but also for, you know, our customers in the world. I think innovation is key to forwarding human society. So thank you for everything. Absolutely. Yes. Excellent. Thank you, Eric. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you for being on the podcast and keep on innovating. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Faster, please. Yeah. Faster, <laughs> yes, sir. <laughs> well, and thank you to everyone for tuning in this week. We appreciate you listening. Please continue to subscribe, share with a friend, uh, and let us know how we're doing and what you want to hear uh, hear from next. Um, we love that feedback. Erica. Yes, yes, definitely. Definitely. And uh, yeah, just let's all keep innovating. Have a great week. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store 